Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Hear God's word. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. There's going to be a picture that's going to be up here in just a second. It's an old picture. Um, this is an artistic or visual depiction of the property plan for the church where I grew up and where my father was the pastor. Uh, this was probably developed or put together around 1985 or 1986, and by 1997, that plan was fully realized. Uh, within a few more years, not only were those buildings there, but where you see trees in the background were fields and other buildings and educational uh, facilities for a Christian school that was part of this particular church. And my parents, even though my dad has not been the pastor there for now almost 15 years, um, they have this painting in their house still. And I love this painting. It stood in the, it was in the foyer for our church for most of my childhood as kind of a giving people vision as to what we were seeking to build in regards to physically um, at our church. And I love those buildings. Now, I know the church is not the building. And by the way, we're not starting a building campaign today. <laughs> for those of you who are new or like, oh no, get me out of here as fast as possible. But I love that place. I love that place. So much so that during my college and my seminary years that when I would drive back into Palm Bay, Florida, I would come to a place called Emerson Road. And at Emerson Road, at the intersection there, I could go right and go to my parents' house, where I was going to eventually go. Or I could go left and I could go to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Sometimes it was at 3 in the morning. Sometimes it was late at night. Sometimes it was early in the morning. But I would always go left first. Because I loved that church, and I wanted to be there again. I wanted to see it. You see, I, before those buildings were there, I spent time playing in the woods, where those buildings would eventually be constructed. I played in the buildings as they were being constructed. I knew every closet, every nook and cranny, every square inch of the place. My happiest memories, my sweetest relationships were formed with this place as the backdrop. This is the place where I learned about Jesus, where I learned to worship with God's people and learned to love being with God's people. It was the place where I literally grew up experiencing some of my most joyous and most embarrassing moments. I remember the first day that Missy Eisenbrandt showed up at church, and I, my life never was the same again. I was 10 years old, and I didn't notice women before that. And then I realized three years later, one of my more shameful moments when Missy Eisenbrandt said, declared publicly that she liked one of my best friends more than she liked me. And I went running to my father's office. I remember flipping over handlebars of my bike in front of the entire girls' soccer team. But it was also here that on Saturday mornings that in one of those offices, I would go and I would meet with my dad, and we would read A.W. Tozer together. And he would get on his knees, and he would pray with me, and he would pray over me on Saturday mornings. It was here that I led my first Bible study, the first time I led a worship service, and the first place I ever taught publicly. It was here that God cultivated a love for the church in me, 
where I wrestled with the ugliness of the church, and it was there, and where I discovered God's call in my life to serve and to lead the church. It happened slowly, not all at once, but over years, I grew to love not the buildings, and yes, the people, but the church at large, and I want you to love the church too. Today is a crunchy and high-level sermon. It's a 30,000-foot view, but from the beginning, I want you to know that this is deeply personal for me, and I desperately want it to be personal for you, a love for the church. And so today, we're going to be looking at the theology of the church. That's what chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 gives us. And these three or four very short verses, we get essentially an overview of what we could call the full theology of the church of Jesus Christ. Or I actually say we could even call it this, the gospel of the church. Now, we, we put the gospel too quickly in front of everything. There's the gospel this and the gospel that and the gospel-centered this and the gospel-centered parenting and the gospel-centered single person and the gospel-centered college ministry and the gospel-centered, I don't know, toddler. But I want, I want you to understand that, that, that this is giving us the gospel of the church. The good news, this is indicatives, not imperatives today. This is indicatives. Next week you get some more imperatives about the church, but this week it's the indicatives. The statements, the Apostles' Creed makes this unbelievable statement of the very, the most basic things that we believe. One of the things that you're to believe in is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That means universal. The Holy, one Holy Universal Church. And so we're going to answer these questions today as we look at the theology of the church, the gospel of the church. What, who, what are we? <laughs> what are we even doing here? And this I'll maybe call the identity of the church. How are we built? In other words, the construction of the church. And lastly, what are we becoming? Or what I'll call the future of the church. What is the church or what is our identity? The identity of the church. It says it there in verse 19. So then you are. You're not strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members with the household of God. Now, there are two descriptions about our identity as God's people. Now, there are many identifications about God's people in the scriptures. We're only going to focus on the two here. We're called an army. Other people call us a hospital. We're various descriptions, but these two I want to look at this morning. And the first is this. The identity of the church is the church is the citizens of God's kingdom. It is the citizens of God's kingdom. Ben addressed this a couple of weeks ago when he looked at the early part of chapter 2. We were once enemies of God. We belonged in a different kingdom. We were citizens of another nation. Jesus even tells the Pharisees that they're sons of the evil one. This is the dominion that we were part of. A warring tribe and a nation that was against God. Without Christ, it describes us as what? Strangers and aliens. Strangers are people who are of a different race, who live in a foreign land. And aliens are sojourners who've come to live in a land. They live there, but they don't belong to that place. Their citizenship is somewhere else, but now they live here. And that's how we once were. Paul uses this term to remind us that we were spiritual outsiders, alienated both from God and from God's people. But... In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says that though we were once aliens to these things from the covenant of promise, that we were without a hope and without God in the world, this status has been changed in Christ Jesus. So not only is the wall of hostility taken down, but now we are brought into Christ's kingdom. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer strangers and sojourners, no longer aliens, but citizens. We're no longer rootless, 
But instead, we are in Christ. We are now part of a new society and a new humanity and a new nation. He has broken down the wall of hostility. He has given us access to the point that we are welcome into his kingdom as full citizens, not as immigrants, but as full citizens. We are now citizens of the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? What does that mean for our identification? Well, it means that there's a king. Kingdoms have kings. And so therefore, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we submit to the king. We live according to the laws of this kingdom. And we participate in the mission of this kingdom. And we follow the king wherever he takes us. Are you a kingdom people? Are you a kingdom people? Second, we have the identity of the church is this, is also that we are members of God's household. You could also say we're members of God's family. It is one thing to be a citizen of the kingdom. What we're actually going to see here is a progression of greater intimacy to our relationship with God. We move from, it is one thing to be part of the king's kingdom. It's another part to be part of the king's family. And that's who we've become. Romans 9, Paul quotes Hosea in describing our change of status when he says this in Romans 9, verses 25 and 26. As indeed Hosea says, those who were not my people I now call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will now call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now you belong in a way that you never did before. You who used to be refugees, you've not simply been given status as as citizens in the kingdom, but you have now now become part of the nation, but actually part of the household of the king. You live not on a passport, but with a new birth certificate. That's what you have. Not just a passport, but a new birth certificate. You belong to God. Now notice the language here. It says that our identification is as fellow citizens. That means that this is not a kingdom of one. There are many millions, and we are members of the household of God. The assumption is that you're not an only child. It is not you and God only. It is a household. It's important to understand that the church here When we talk about the other citizens, that we are not talking about disembodied souls that show up to church. That is not what church is, where we neglect the physical aspect of who we are. The church is both spiritual and invisible, but also physical and visible. We don't say, well, I'm with, you know what, I went to church today. My spirit was there with all the other spirits at church. No, no. No, it is a physical thing, and therefore the people who are physically part of a God's household and citizens of his kingdom, you will see them, which means it belongs to our children as well. We should assume that not only are those who spiritually are there in faith, but those who are physically here and part of our body as believers who are part of the citizens and members of the household of God. We are talking about people who are spiritually alive but have physical bodies, and therefore, as a church, we care for one another both spiritually and physically. We care for one another's needs. But it's important to understand that we, would, we look at each other as a family. Brethren, or brothers and sisters, is the commonest word for Christians in the New Testament. It expresses the close relationship of affection and care and support, and if your family was like my family, probably some fighting as well. So when it says that we are citizens like that of a nation, we should expect as well that church is going to have some rules and some laws, isn't it? It will have a structure and it will have a form. Might I even dare say it might have a hierarchy of authority and leadership? You'll be able to see that next week from chapter 4. 
apostles, prophets, teachers, elders, deacons, how we use our gifts. That's what chapter four we'll talk about. And when it says that we are members of a household, we should see that we will function like a family. The early church functioned as a family. It says in Acts 2, what? They were always doing what? They were always in each other's house. Like the show, Everybody Loves Raymond. Remember, his mom lived across the street and she was always in his house. And that comes with some great benefits and it comes with some undesirable benefits as well. But that is who we are to be. We were to eat together and they, the church prayed together and they cared for one another, realized that the church is not something that you do, it is something that you are. You are the church. And so you are a part of the family. And what does this mean? So join the church. And I mean give verbal, physical affirmation as a member of a church. Attend church. We talked about this in a family meeting we had before the service. We have 420 people who would describe this church as their home, and we average about 240 on a Sunday. What does that tell you? Your attendance is on average between 50 and 60%. So you attend church all the time. You raise your kids in church. You raise your kids in church because they desperately need to be from the very beginning, not seen as outsiders of God's family, but from the very beginning seen as insiders, as a part of God's household. And therefore, we do life together. We stay after church and you talk. You cannot show up to church and then bolt and say, I've done church. No, family is with each other all the time, and so should the church. So you stick around. You got to let your kids climb the magnolia tree, no matter how dangerous it is. You have to let your kids get grass stains and play gaga ball or get sweaty out back, and you have to hang out and have three awkward conversations in order to have one significant one. <laughs> this is what church looks like. We have crazy uncles and aunts but we love each other. And so God loves when we worship together and when we play together, when we meet to worship, but also when we vote together. And I don't mean politically, I mean as a church. When we gather institutionally and when we spend time together organically, we are one nation under one king and we are one family in the house of one father. And therefore, John Calvin calls us the third race. The third race. Not Jew, not Gentile. The third race. So, that's our identification it's our identity. How is the church, though, built? There is a building project going on here. We're halfway through it, or some portion of the way through it. We live in a construction zone. Like any building, it needs a foundation, and it needs a plan, and it needs a shape to it. Praise God, he gives it to us, an architectural design. How is the church constructed? Well, it tells us in verses 19, it says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, or verses 20 says this, nothing is more important to an edifice than a stable foundation. And Jesus is, you know, Jesus' well-known parable about the, the two builders, one built on, on the sand and one built on the rock. And he concluded his sermon and said this, that we need a rock. And what is the rock of the church? Verse 20, it is built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now very briefly, I don't desire to dive into this too far, but what is meant by the apostles and the prophets? The apostles here cannot be a generic term. The word literally means sent ones, but here it is speaking of something more specific than simply any, any person who is a, someone who is sent out as a church planter or a church leader. Micah, God bless him, he's been sent, but I don't think he wants to be known as an apostle, at least in the big A sort of way. If Micah, this is a lot of pressure on you, bud. If, if Micah speaks ex cathedra, I have spoken, and he adds to God's word, we should pay him a lot more. And frankly, he should pay me a lot more. Um, but that is not what we're talking about here. 
for apostles in regards to the generic sent ones. Apostles, as it's talked about here, is big A apostles, like the 12, like Paul, like those who saw and witnessed Jesus' resurrection. We are to think of them as God and spirit-inspired teachers, organs of divine revelation who speak to us the very word of God. And what they taught, they expected the church to believe and to preserve and to obey. Prophets, similarly, what were they? Prophets are those who speak revelatory words from God or inspired teachers to whom the word of God came and they conveyed that word to others faithfully. Now this couplet of apostles and prophets is seen a number of places in the scriptures. Some understand it to mean the apostles write the New Testament and prophets write the Old Testament. That could be true. Or it simply could be the basis of all the basis of the church's teaching. All those who speak in a revelatory way to the church. Here's the significant point that's being made. The church is founded on God's revelation, spoken through his inspired and declared witnesses, and they write what we call the Bible. And therefore, when it says we are to found the church, the church is founded on the apostles and prophets, you can hear that as saying, it means that we are built on the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. These who are apostles and prophets wrote the church's foundational documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications. This is why at the end of Revelations it says, hey, don't add to this book. Don't add to this. Now, very quickly, do we have any kind of apostles and prophets? Yeah, we can talk about apostles and prophets in the generic way. Apostles, those who are sent ones. And next week you're going to see that the church has this structure of apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. They exist. That's what we're going to see. These offices, are, though, are different or they're merely derived from what we might call big A apostles and big P prophets. Modern apostles and prophets are those who are gifted with the message to take the gospel where it has not yet gone or to speak it into a, in a way that the desperately needs God's word applied to it. So, are there those who are gifted to bring in the word of the Lord into specific situations? Yes. Are there those who are gifted at bringing the word of God into places where it has never been before? Yes. But they, they don't say something new. We are all function as derivative speakers. We all speak, all the words that we speak are derived from the word that has already been established. Derivative. And so if I say something new here, you should have cause for concern. Cause for concern. Now I may say it in a new way, and only the way that I, in my special brain, can say it. (laughs) But it shouldn't be something principally that's different than God's word. The church is founded upon the word. Therefore, we must be a church that has the word as the, at the center of all that we do. The church stands or falls upon our loyal dependence on the scriptures. We must be Bible-based. Founded means it is the beginning of the building. It means it is what gives life to the building. In fact, Jesus talked about the word in that way. Matthew 4, verse 4 says this. It is written, he says this to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By the word that comes from the mouth of God. How do we have life as a church? The word. Not by our awesome activities, not by our brilliant community. These things are all flow from the spring of God's 
word. Therefore, what that means is the church is not a human invention. We did not form it. God's word birthed it. Just as God's word spoke all of creation into existence, just as he brought forth Israel by his word, so God created the church through the proclaimed gospel of the revealed word of Jesus Christ. So it gives us life. It's also the means of preserving us. When the church loses the word, we cease to be a church. And we cease to have life in us. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the patterns of Old Testament Israel and the people of God there is that they had the law, and about every couple generations, they would forget the law, and they would put it away somewhere, and it would get old and dusty, and they would neglect it. And then Israel, what would happen to Israel? They would fall to pieces. And there would be droughts and famines and people who would come and persecute them. And then lo and behold, some king or priest would discover this thing called the law. And he would dust it off and blow it off. And he would breed it. And all of a sudden, what would happen? Revival would happen. Revival would happen. And therefore, we should be a people that desperately cling to the word of God so that we are not a people who forget God's word and therefore die. Therefore die. There's a 137-mile-long river called the Atchafalaya. It's a distributary of the Mississippi River. And it meanders through, through Louisiana and empties into the Gulf of Mexico. And it serves as an enormous, enormous source of income for that region of our country. You used to live down there. It is scenic and it's reductive and it's riching. It's a beautiful place. But that tributary owes itself not to its own power. It is a tributary of the Mississippi River. And if you were to cut off that river from the Mississippi River, what would happen to it? It would become stagnant and it would die. Well, that's the churches like that. Anything of value that she accomplishes is not, is not of us. It only flows from the word. It is from, from the living word. And therefore, we must remain connected to it to have any power or any hope of life at all. Anytime a building shifts away from its foundation, you can expect that building to do What? Ultimately, it will crumble. And so, anything that would threaten this church are those that are where we move and look at various philosophies or worldviews that are anything other than the one given to us by the scriptures. And so, King Chapel, the word is our foundation, is it not? We begin our worship services here. We fill our time together with the word. We end our worship services with the word. As elders, we are to lead with the word. We are to study, know what the word says. We study the word. We memorize the word. We live the word. We defend the word. A church founded on the word of God. But the most critical part of the foundation is not just the center part of it. It is what is called the cornerstone. And this is where we see that we need to be we're a church that is Christ-centered. The church is centered on Christ. It flows out of him. The passage says that of this foundation, Christ is the cornerstone. Now, this idea of a cornerstone is not new to the New Testament. It is in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 28, 16, it says, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion. That's Jerusalem. And in particularly speaking to the high point of the temple, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone of a sure foundation. And 1 Peter in chapter 2, he picks this up. And he says this, pointing to Jesus, for it stands in scriptures, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious one. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And 1 Peter 2 is pointing directly at Christ Jesus. He is the cornerstone. 
He is the foundation, ultimately. And I understand why it's important that Jesus be referred to by some odd building material from the ancient Near East. We need to understand the role of a cornerstone in ancient Near Eastern architecture. In the building technique that is being talked about here, the cornerstone of the foundation would be the first stone that is put in place. And you look for a large stone, and you shape that stone such that it has perfectly right angles in all places. It cannot have cracks in the foundation. And all the rest of the building is built upon this cornerstone. The rest of the foundation comes to be even with this cornerstone. It shapes everything. And if the cornerstone was strong, it would determine the stability and the firmness of the building. The cornerstone gave architectural unity and symmetry. If, you need, if the cornerstone had right angles, the rest of the building could be assured that it would be built correctly. Everything in the construction of the building had to be adjusted to the cornerstone. The rest of the building didn't just go wherever it wanted to. It had to be adjusted to this foundation. And the implication of the image is this, is that Christ is to shape the church. He's to be the one who gives us shape and symmetry. And the stability of the church is all found in Christ Jesus. Christ is who the church is going to be grow up to look like. He gives us our shape. Christ is the standard that we go back to to make sure that we are living and forming ourselves rightly. Christ is the one who gives stability in the face of life's earthquakes when they come at the church. All these things are pointing to you in this image. The application should be obvious. Jesus is to be the centerpiece of the church. And so, yes, this whole idea of gospel-centered and Christ-centered is maybe overused and become a trope, but it is not, it, it is not, not true. It is actually, it truly is. We, our foundation in the core of our church needs to be Christ-centered. Without the church, the church cannot, without Christ, the church cannot be built. And without Christ, the church will come tumbling down. A church that abandons Jesus Christ becomes nothing but a social club around in the world. That's all it is. And it's lost its power, its cohesion, and it's lost the one indispensable thing that we so desperately need. The life of the church, therefore, must be brought in line with Christ. Everything must be seen in who he is, in light of who he is. Do we reflect Jesus? It talks about this in one of the places in the scriptures. That there, some who are dying, Christ is the aroma of death, and to others, he is the aroma of life. So let me ask you this. When someone shows up to King's Chapel, do they smell Jesus? When they look at the life of King's Chapel, do they see the life of Jesus? When we call each other to repentance, do we call each other in view of Jesus? You know, there's a scene in the, in the New Testament where one apostle corrects another apostle, and you know how he does it? It's when Paul goes to Peter, when Peter was no longer willing to eat with Gentiles, and he goes to, P to, Peter, or to Peter and says this, you are not living in line with the gospel. He doesn't say, Peter, you're a racist. That's bad. No, what he says is, Peter, look at your life in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it, bring it back into alignment with how Jesus lived and what he taught. So we trust our buildings and our methods and our experience as a church. No, we trust Christ and his completed work as our sure and true foundation. We look to him as the true leader of the church. He is king after all. So this is what our construction is made of. The foundation of the word and the cornerstone that is Christ. Lastly, what are we becoming? 
This is the future of the church. Verse 21 and 22 give us this image. The future of the church, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are, two things I want to say here about this. We are being built into the temple. We are being built into a temple. The building of the church is the work of the Spirit, shaping and centering us on Christ, giving life to us, preserving us by the foundation of the Word of God, and the Spirit does all this so that we are joined together, joined together around Christ Jesus, and in doing so, He is forming us into a temple of the living God. 1 Peter 2 picks up on this image as well. Right before verse 6, where it talks about Jesus as the living stone, it says this about us. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is who we are. I love this image. We are to be living stones. When you think about stones, this is really important. Stones are not bricks. Bricks are all the same size, the same shape, but not stones. Think about how they built the original temple. In 1 Kings chapter 6, they, it says that they went to a, stro- a stone quarry, and they would, ch- shape, they would take out large chunks of, of strong stone, and they would shape it, and they would form it, and they would soften it and sand it down, and they would hammer the stone so they took a certain shape, but they would not all be the same. And skilled craftsmen would do this, and artistic stone workers, they would then take these stones, and they would take it to the construction site of the temple, and some artists would take those stones and in the perfect way set them just right in the formation of the temple. You are one of those living stones. And each one of us individually, the Spirit of God in his beautiful and artistic way is forming and shaping you, and then he's placing you perfectly with all of your gifts in the perfect place amongst this thing called the church, God's temple. And it's in this way that we are being joined together by the Spirit of the living God. Now think about this. You're not some singular brick, like a Lego brick. You're not just, there's many kinds of Legos, And you are one of those many kinds of Legos. And Legos by themselves, one singular Lego is no good for anything. In fact, a Lego by itself becomes very dangerous, does it not? It is used for nothing else but to be hidden in the carpet for me to step on it at two in the morning and to yelp like an angered dog. That is all that a singular Lego is good, good for. But you put together a Lego with a thousand of the other kinds of pieces, and it becomes something masterful to behold. And we are far greater than singular Legos, are we not? We are made in the very image of God. And so Jesus is the cornerstone with infinite vitality, a huge cornerstone. Picture him as a massive stone in his foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in living stones, you and I are placed upon them in this beautiful fashion to become something known as the temple of God. And this temple that we are in is in the presence of of. It's the process of being presently grown. And in all these identifications that we've seen this morning, we are and we are not yet. We are the temple now, and we are becoming a more beautified temple. It is a process. This first reminds us that no church is finished or complete yet, just as no person is fully sanctified. The church of Jesus Christ is still in the process of becoming. Excuse our mess, we are under construction. The present tense indicatives that the church is being built together right 
now, before your very eyes. And this process, understand, is slow and most often unsensational. Again, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, When the house was built, speaking of the temple, it was with stone prepared at a quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. In other words, it says this about the, the construction of the temple. It was quiet. There was nothing very sexy about it. It was not flashy. And yet God was building there something beautiful and so much more is his spiritual temple known as the church. Sometimes the maturing of the church, most often I would say it happens quietly. There are moments, yes, where something sensational and loud and magnificent happens, but be careful of esteeming noise and sensationalism. The places where the church most profoundly grows often are in the places where it is so insignificantly seen. Think of a mustard seed. But most of our progress in the faith will be steady and slow. It's going to be a fight. Sometimes it's going to be very boring. There's going to be very long days. And so it is with the church. There's going to be slow and steady growth. But it is a sure growth. And it will be completed. Why? Because God is the one who builds it. Remember, these are indicatives, not something you do. He's doing it. But what's the ultimate goal of this? Building this temple is so that we would become the very dwelling place of God. What are temples even for? To encounter God. The same purpose of the Old Testament is present here in the New Testament temple called the church. In the wilderness, God took up residence in a tabernacle. It was full such that the glory of God was seen there such that Moses could not enter the tabernacle. The same thing happens when they build the, ta- in the, the, the temple in 1 Kings. He hums to habitat amongst his people. And the truth of the New Testament is he comes now to habitat in us. We become God's holy house. If people want to encounter God, where do they have to go? God's holy house. They need to be around God's people. The tabernacle and the temple, the Son of God, is coming to us as Emmanuel, God with us. And the Spirit has come to indwelt us. And so we are told the Spirit's presence is the down payment of something even greater, of his fullness of his presence that we will actually experience at the end of all things, right? That's what Paul prays towards, right? At the end of Ephesians chapter three, that you may have the fullness of God in you. The spirit of everywhere, he does this in us. Now you might ask, now that seems odd that he would, God, God's gonna, he's like in one spot. I thought God was everywhere. At least that's what my kid's catechism says. What does it mean that he dwells in us? Well, this is what we might call an anthropomorphism, Anthropos, the Greek word for man, morphism is form. It's a word that refers to when God speaks of himself and human characteristics as God being, God is everywhere, but he's speaking of himself as being significantly in one particular place. His dwelling is not a, not a dwelling where he is limited to such a place, but when it says that God came to dwell in the temple and dwell in the tabernacle and now dwells in us, it means that the church is his special place. He's specifically identified there. It's a specific concern for him, and you can meet him in a profound way there. And in other words, this is like God saying, home, my home is where my heart is. Now, you may not literally physically be at home, but it's where your heart is. It's in some way God saying that. My special identification, my intimacy, my connection is with this place called the church. These people. And the one who writes Ephesians loved the church because he had encountered the God who would die for the church. Who writes Ephesians? Paul. And Paul knew how seriously God took his church because in Paul's 
Paul's testimony, God shows up to Paul when Paul's on his way on the Damascus road to go and persecute the church. And God shows up to Paul and he knocks him off his horse and with a bright light says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, God so closely identifies himself with you and me that if you wound one of his people, you've wounded him. And so Paul sees that, my goodness, God is so closely linked to this place. He has indwelt them, and he cares for them such that when they suffer, he has suffered. This is the intimacy and the identity that's wrapped up between God and his people. And so he comes and he makes us his dwelling. And in so doing, he beautifies us and makes us something lovely. Now, this is the image at the end of all things in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. It says this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This image conjures up what the church is, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be called the bride of Christ. When I do weddings, I talk about Ephesians chapter 5 talk about Christ's love for the church, and I talk about one of the goals of marriage. The goal of marriage is to make us our future glory selves. To, for the husband to so wash his wife with the water of the word, it says in Ephesians 5, that she becomes adorned and beautiful and radiant because that's what Jesus is doing with the church. He's making her beautiful. And you know that this is what Jesus is doing? He's forming and shaping and making us something so glorious and so lovely that he's going to present you to himself as the greatest gift. And understand, just like with marriage, what I tell people about marriage is, listen, if you're going to be part of shaping this spouse of yours into their future glory selves, you can't give up when you realize that something's not very perfect about them. That's the whole point. You marry them not because they're perfect and lovely and beautiful. You marry them so that you may become a part of their beautifying process. And therefore, here's what I'd say to you. And in, in, a, in an era where there's COVID and people are leaving, where there's political division, I don't know if it's worse than it was before, but it doesn't feel good now. But that we don't give up. And that what we actually need is a covenantal commitment to one another, like the covenantal commitment that we have in marriage, which says this, you may not be that beautiful on your wedding day, but I have a vision for you, that you would be a beautiful temple one day, and that I'm going to commit myself to you, no matter the wounds and the warts that you bring into my life. Jesus says, if you want to know me, if you want to know me, then you have to join up with my deeply frustrating frightening, real, repeatedly disheartening, and yet joyfully rich, powerfully healing, holiness-creating people of God as they gather every single week to come to know their king. And what's the good news is that God is the one who's ultimately doing this building. You just keep showing up. And we keep going to the word, and we keep clinging to Jesus, and we trust that as we cling to him, our spouse, he will beautify us. He is the architect, he is the planner, he is the perfect one. He is, this is the work of God, done by the will of God, the plan of God, and he's going to do it all upon us. I end with this. John Stott said this. On earth, the church is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. 
But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or other disfigurement, holding without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. So would you join the church? Would you give your life to being a part of the church? Because it is here together that God is making us something beautiful in his sight. Let's pray and let's go to the table. If you are serving the ta- Lord's Supper this morning, will you please head this way as I pray and set aside the elements. Let's pray. Lord, it is a fitting end for this service that we would come and gather around a table together. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would, um, where our vision of the church has been mostly about our experience of the church, which is often not good. (laughs) And when we look around and we see her weakness and her warts, God, I pray that you would remind us of the gospel of the church, that there's indicatives, there's things that you've said are statements of fact about us, and that you're doing something and you've promised to complete your work to make us into a building that is beautiful to behold, that you will indwell for all of eternity. And so, gracious God, we come with our frustrations with the church and our disappointments with the church and our joy, and we say, God, would you come and fill us up? Would you, would you keep us centered upon the word? Would you keep us clinging by the Spirit to Jesus Christ? May we be rooted and founded in him and him alone. May he be the life that we cling to in this place. And speaking of clinging to the life of Jesus, we thank you that you, by your spirit, you come and you give us bread in a cup. And you say that where you take this bread and this cup in my name, you extend your spiritual grace and mercy to us. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, we set aside this bread and this cup, this simple bread and this simple cup, and we, we, we ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would come and this would be a part of your work of grace, that we would be more deeply connected to Jesus in these moments. That you would convince us again of your love for us, of the power that you've given us. So would you do that? Unify us around this table in this work of Jesus, we pray. Amen.